0: So we do this by having them walk on a plank that's suspended, you know, really high above a city street. And we get pretty good anxiety responses from people. Um, Their heart rate goes up.
1: Hello, and welcome to Why Don't We Just? A podcast about the complex answers to simple questions. My name is Dale Favisor, and this is episode two of Why Don't We Just? Ask People to Change. Whether it is asking your flatmate to do it the dishes or asking folks not to be distracted in meetings, we're exploring the hidden complexities that make behavior change difficult. Last episode, we heard from Anne McCaskill about the science techniques specifically around behavior change. Today, we are talking to
0: Gina Grimshaw, an associate professor in psychology here at Victoria University
1: of Wellington, to be precise. Victoria University does not wish to be confused with other locations, named Victoria University, that also happen to be nowhere near it.
0: Uh, My background is in cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, My particular interest as well is in how emotion affects how we think.
1: Today we'll hear about biases, the blind spots that occur in our thinking, when we neither have the time nor the desire to think something through biases can affect how likely people are to do what we're wanting them to do, and later on, we'll cover Gina's own research on our biases towards emotional things, and how that can distract us. By the end of this episode, we'll have an understanding of how to either circumvent or account for biases when trying to change behaviour. For now, I asked Gina Grimshaw how she introduces biases to her students for the first time.
0: And so I actually, when I teach bias, I like to begin with perception. A uh, really really simple perception so you may have seen an image of a, a ballerina that, that was sort of went yep. around the internet a while ago and she spins either to the left or to the right and you can find some people who see her spinning leftward and some people who see her spinning rightward Or another example is the dress, right? So everybody by now has seen the the
1: dress. If you haven't, for reference, the dress was an image that went around the internet several years ago showing a dress hanging in a clothes shop. Many who saw it swore up and down that the dress was white and gold. Others swore it was blue and black. It baffled millions how anyone could see a colour combination different than the one they personally saw.
0: And in any room full of people, you can find roughly half the people who are certain that the dress is white and gold, and another half who are certain that it's blue and brown, and then there's a few odd people who think it's something else entirely different. We feel like when we see things, we just see them, um, as if they're some photographic representation of the world. Uh, But even in early, early simple processes like that, we have to make a decision about what we see. And once you do, because the issue with the ballerina is that she's what we call an ambiguous figure. Because she's flat, she's not actually spinning in either direction. And so you can interpret her as spinning left or right. Once you perceive the ballerina spinning to the right, she is spinning to the right. It's not like you sit there and think, oh, I think she's spinning to the right. She is. You see her as spinning to the right, and, and you can't even entertain the thought that she might spin in the other direction until suddenly it flips. And the same thing with the dress depends on whether you interpret the dress as being inside the shop, being lit by artificial light, or outside the shop, being lit by natural light. That's what determines that difference.
1: These are good examples to help us understand what biases are and how fundamental they can be to how we see the world. But biases don't solely occur in the realm of perception.
0: So this is a fundamental aspect of human cognition. It's really important for our survival that given the fairly, you know, ambiguous and messy data that our brains get about the world, we have to make decisions about what we see, what we hear, what we understand, what we remember. And that's bias there is some reason that biases us towards seeing something one way or another way. In the case of a dress, the dress example, it appears to be some bias about the envir- that's created by the natural environment that you live in. Do you live in places with lots of, lots of outdoor light or lots of indoor light? And that creates assumptions. And then assumptions change how you see the world. Nobody thinks that's really controversial. But then we scale that up a little bit and say it's not really any different when we make a judgment about how risky is the world or how dangerous is the world or what are somebody else's motivations for doing something and the same sorts of biases come into play because those situations are also ambiguous. And so we bring to it our best guess of what other people's motivations are or our best guess of what the risk is. And once we make that decision, we feel like that's the only decision. We're not even aware of it as a decision-making process. And that's kind of the way cognition influences all of our decision-making.
1: However, it is important to take a moment to stress that No matter how understandable it is that biases exist, this does not excuse those who act on the discriminatory biases like those against people of a different ethnicity, gender, sexuality, economic class and so forth. As Jenna Grimshaw later said,
0: We also have values that tell us that we should not, for example, be judgmental about groups of people that we don't understand all that well. And so those are our values, then we need to institute other ways of thinking to make sure that we don't behave in ways that are against our values.
1: Before we get into the ways of trying to minimize our own or others' biases, so far we've only alluded to how biases affect our decision making, and there are a lot of them. One list on Wikipedia mentions over 150 of them, such as backfire confirmation effect, confirmation bias, hindsight bias, post-purchase rationalisation, moral luck, group bias, stereotyping. the fundamental attribution error. Each of these could fill out an entire episode for how they work, how they can be managed, and how they assist or hinder behavioural change. Instead, I talked with our guest about just one the availability bias.
0: And that is that when we need to make decisions, information that comes easily to mind or comes easily into our awareness is, is weighted more heavily than information we have to dig around for that doesn't come up. And so this availability bias is implicated in all sorts of things about how we make judgments, for example, about whether something sounds true. Stephen Colbert, a late night talk
1: show host and political comedian,
0: in his uh, his previous TV show coined this term truthiness, uh, which is the feeling that something is right. It's not being right. It's not truth. It's truthiness, um, that something has the feeling. Uh, And we tend to agree with things where it isn't too hard to think. It's information that comes easily to mind. And that in a way makes sense. Uh, if it's information that comes easily to mind, it's probably important um, because we tend to prioritize things, for example, that have survival value. Um, so danger is something that's important to our survival. So things that make it, might make us feel anxious easily come to mind things that happen often, are frequent in our world, are probably are going to come more easily to mind and so might be a good
1: interpretation of something. In other words, if something is more common or true, it's usually easier to think of. As a result, humanity has evolved a mental shortcut where, if something is easier to think of, it's assumed to be probably be a common or true thing.
0: So, there's nothing wrong with this bias. Uh, In fact, it's kept humans alive for a really long time. We have the bias because we have a bias like that because it's functional. Um, Most of the time it works in ways that help us survive. But of course, sometimes it can lead you astray because life is more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, so... For example, if I were to ask you to do something that was particularly novel or new to you, you would be much less willing to go along with that compared to something that you do every day that I ask you to do?
0: Um, Possibly. Certainly, Certainly in terms of agreeing with you about something. So things that feel comfortable and familiar are easy for me to agree with. Something where I have to really think about information I maybe don't have access to are going to be harder for me to agree with. Um, There are individual differences, though, so the example that you just brought out. Some people are are definitely novelty seekers, right? So in terms of people differ in how much they want to seek out new information or new and challenging ideas, Uh, whereas other people may want to be conservative and and keep with the status quo.
1: To summarise, the availability bias is where things feel much more correct to us because they come more easily to mind. If it is harder for people to grasp, they are less likely to agree, even if the argument is merits. This can be seen when people drum up outrage around something by referring to it with a more chemically sounding name, like fluoride or MSG. For many people, the context in which they most often hear names of chemicals is when they're being described as dangerous, meaning the concept of dangerous chemicals is much more available to people and makes it easier to believe that things like fluoride and MSG could be dangerous also. Taking this to the extreme is the reoccurring hoax around dihydrogen monoxide, a chemical-sounding name for water. Whenever this hoax occurs, people are quite happy to sign petitions calling to ban dihydrogen monoxide as it's described like yet another dangerous chemical. Before we move on to how to discourage or minimise these biases, I also discuss with Gina her own research which provides an interesting example of the shortcuts our brains take.
0: So one of the things that we really focus on in our lab um, is this interplay between emotion and attention. So attention is the system that allows us, given all the zillions of possible things that we, are, we can devote our brain processing resources to at any time, attention is the thing that allows us to sort of highlight the ones that are really relevant to what m- my goals are right now. Um, so if I walk into my office and I'm looking for my keys and I know I have a yellow key ring, then I can kind of sort of tune my attention to look for yellow things. Emotion plays into this because emotion is most of the time pretty relevant. So emotional things really, by definition, are things that are related to either some sort of rewards, um, some sort of pleasure, some sort of gain, or some sort of punishment, um, some sort of threat, uh, some sort of loss. So emotions are about values, really. Uh, And so in general, they kind of win in terms of what are the most important things in my environment. But sometimes the emotional thing might not actually be the thing that you need. So you might you might be needing to, for example, ignore the fact that you're angry at somebody so that you can actually have a proper business negotiation. Or you might be need to, to overcome the anxiety that you have about people judging you so that you can give a talk uh, in a public speaking event. Uh, so there are all sorts of... Or you might have to overcome your you know desire for some sort of reward so that you can go on and focus on your longer-term goals. Uh, so we want to kind of understand this process because... Actually, for the most part, there's emotional stuff around us all the time. So, how do we deal with that?
1: One clear example of emotional distraction that Gina provides is you know, you're
0: driving on the highway and um, there's an accident on the other side of the road, and you know you're not really suppo- supposed to look at it because you're going to cause an accident. So that's a classic real-world situation where an emotional distraction is is a, sort of a bad thing that you want to have some sort of control over.
1: However, There is immense difficulty in trying to artificially set up these scenarios to try and manipulate how people act in them. Instead...
0: What we do is we ask people to do really boring things, like here's a little... We flash some letters up on a screen and say, look for the X, and then we try and distract them. And we might distract them with pictures of emotional scenes or faces of people with emotional expressions or emotional sounds like screams or laughter and uh, and say, ignore those things, just concentrate on the thing that I told you to do. And we do that as a way of trying to understand what are the conditions in which we can actually, actually power through a little bit and ignore emotional things. And we found that in some circumstances, people are very distracted. So if an emotional thing only happens every once in a while, where it might actually bring new information
1: For example, hearing someone shout, indicating that they or something else may be danger
0: then people are really easily distracted by it but if they appear over and over again
1: like if it's Friday night and the streets are filled with loud drunk people
0: people can adapt to that. If we reward people, if we just say, I'll pay you five cents if you don't get distracted by this thing, that's actually really effective. So this idea, we call it cognitive control, this ability that despite the fact that the emotional things are important, we actually do have the ability to override that. Um, The same might be said now, if you think about your decision making, this is again, really simple decision making, what should I pay attention to? But if you think of larger decision-making, even though we have these sorts of biases, there are ways we can use good control or good strategies to help us make better decisions.
1: I say I'm seeing people being distracted. Why can't I just ask them, hey, could you stop being distracted, please?
0: Well, you can. (laughs) Uh, You may or may not be particularly successful doing that. So we work with with a the theory uh, that helps us to understand this. It's called the dual mechanisms of control framework. You don't really need to know that, but it suggests that our minds have sort of two modes that we can be in, and one is where we're sort of vigilant for distraction, uh, and which is hard work. An effort, but if you know that there's an important there's a distraction coming up and it's really important that you ignore it, like if I'm going to give you money for ignoring it, um, then you can kind of marshal the resources to focus on what you need to. But in other modes where we we might because that's a really exhausting thing to do, we might just want to sit back and wait for the distractions. You can also imagine lots of situations. Emotional distractions might be really important for your survival. You wouldn't really want to be entirely in a situation where if something really like a snake came you know through my office th- through the open open office door I would actually want to stop focusing on our conversation and pay attention to that so so we might want the system to be able to interrupt us in certain situations
1: however as is often the case with many psychology studies it can be hard to see how abstract situations like trying to find an X on a screen can map back to real-world contexts. Luckily, recent developments in VR allows research like Gina's to... To
0: feel a little bit more like the real world, so we can put people in VR in a threatening situation. So we do this by having them walk on a plank that's suspended, you know, really high above a city street. And we get pretty good anxiety responses from people. Um, Their heart rate goes up, um, they actually sweat, Uh, they walk very very cautiously, and even though everyone knows it's not real, their bodies start to respond as if it's real. So now what we can do is, because it's still a really controlled environment, we can now start to look at how well can you control your distraction when you are actually in an environment where you feel real threat. So most of the time in the lab, no one feels threatened by the pictures of spiders that we show them. Um, But if we change the situation where people might actually feel that there might be some threat to them, Maybe then maybe then you don't ignore emotional distractions. Maybe in those situations you continue to be alert. We don't know.
1: To tie everything discussed together, we now turn to the last question. Given what we know from her research and everything we understand about how biases work, what can we do to minimize these mental shortcuts that may hinder behavioral change?
0: We know that by, for example, getting people to slow down getting people to have a delay period before they actually implement a decision, having group decision-making processes with groups who are as diverse as possible. So everybody's got biases, but everybody's got different biases by creating checklists so that you slow people's thinking down and get them to think about all of the, the unavailable information that didn't easily come to mind when they were trying to make the decision. These are all um, systems that we can put into place to artificially create the, the structure for that that sort of controlled but effortful decision making. the the importance of the decision should weigh into this. People aren't going to do it all the time. We need to be able to make fast, quick, and dirty solid, dirty decisions for our survival. So you could imagine you wouldn't want to you know form a form a committee so that you could you know get a diverse set of opinions every time you decided what you were going to eat for lunch.
1: And that's our content for today. To summarize what we've learned, our brain has many many shortcuts to help us make quick decisions. This ranges from, this is easier to think of so it's likely more important, to, this is a lot of emotional weight, you should pay attention to it right now. For the latter, you can incentivise people to be vigilant against such distractions, but that is an exhausting way to be. For the former, if you slow down decision making and add external checks and balances, you can help people minimise the effects of their biases. Though, sometimes some of the biases at play may actually be useful for what you want them to do. Next time, I talk with Mark Wilson about his research in social psychology, notably how personality types and political worldviews like authoritarianism may affect our efforts at behavioral change. Thank you everyone for listening. Gina Grimshaw was an excellent guest and her years of experience lecturing clearly show. I offer additional thanks to her the Centre for Science and Society for supporting my work and again, all of you. The intro is called The Drama. The outro, Dreams of Fain, Both are by Raphael Crux and I'll see you again soon. It's definitely great to hear you emphasize the um, survivability relevance of a lot of biases and stuff because from my understanding, when a lot of these biases were first discovered All the researchers were like, oh, the human brain is so flawed. How can we do anything?
0: Oh, no, the human brain is fantastic.